My name is Daisha Clay. I'm the audio librarian here at Classical 91.7. While I'm a real librarian, I have a deep, dark secret. I know very little about classical music. I grew up listening to rock. And I know something about jazz. But when it comes to classical... But I really want to learn. So... Every week on this show, a classical music expert will give me a piece of classical music they think I should know, and then we'll discuss it. Come learn with me in the Classical Classroom. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Classical Classroom. I'm Daisha Clay, and here with me today is James Gaffigan, who is the chief conductor of the Lucerne Symphony Orchestra. James is in town conducting the Houston Symphony. Um, this week, and he's actually going to be here through March 2nd, if you want to go check him out at Jones Hall. Um, One of the pieces he's going to be conducting is Shostakovich's Symphony No. 5, um, and that is what we're going to talk about today. By the way, James is also a Shepherd School of Music grad. He went to Rice University, and he has gone very, very far from there. You've been all over the world, huh? Yeah, it's been kind of a crazy <laughs> schedule, but it's, it's really nice to be back in Houston. <laughs> yeah, we were talking before we came on, and he couldn't even remember where he was last. He was <laughs> like, it was in Europe? I think it was like Paris? <laughs> yeah, it's embarrassing. It's embarrassing to get, to get to the border control, and they say, where are you coming from, sir? And you say, um, they're like, this guy has an extra security check now. Wherever the people sent me, that's where I was. Yeah. <laughs> so you're going to be talking to me about Shostakovich's Symphony Number no. 5, which is a really interesting and exciting piece of, of music. I, I haven't heard it that much, I have to say, but I have, I have listened through it, and um, it's got some really, uh, I don't know, he's so he's so dramatic. Yeah. No, it's, it's revolutionary in so many ways, and I think... Um, there's nothing intimidating about this piece. I think every person will get something out of it. Every single type of person will get something out of it. Someone who is a religious person, someone who's not a religious person, someone who's new to music um, will really enjoy this piece. I think, I hate to say audience-friendly, but this is truly an audience-friendly piece. I think everyone's going to have a great adventure. What about it appeals to you personally? Personally, what appeals most to me about this particular symphony um, number five of Shostakovich, is is him as a person and how so much of his life is actually in this music. I think the only comparison I could make is why would we go to a very depressing movie or a depressing film? I think the, the honest answer to that is most of us don't experience that much pain and suffering in our lives. And it's always interesting to see that, you know, secondhand and to experience that. I'm not saying it's fun to experience pain, but at the same time, it, it, you can hear the pain in the music. And, mm-hmm. and this poor man uh, was suffering in so many ways. And you you hear that in the music, but you also hear a lot of triumph and you hear sarcasm and kind of dark and twisted sarcasm in the music. And I I just love that. I love his language. I love his vocabulary as a composer. So what was he going through? I mean, I, I know a little bit about what was going on in Russia at the time. Right. I mean, It was the early 1900s, like the 19, 1917, I think, was when the revolution started there. And, and Shostakovich and I know some other composers, they, they were being watched by the government f- essentially for dissenting in their music, which 
took a little time for me to wrap my head around, yeah. you know, classical music somehow seeming to dissent. But right, I mean, well, you know, he basically sat at the door with his bags packed because he was always thinking he was going to be taken away. Yeah, and you know, while his family slept, and he he had a problem with insomnia because of that, and. You know, he he had a slight smile on his face all the time, but he always thought he was being watched, and which he probably was. Yeah. And you you hear that in the music. I mean, in turning around the corner, not showing, not knowing what's going to happen next, and like I said, with sarcasm, I mean, he was kind of fooling them in a way that the end of the symphony, it can sound triumphant. It could sound like the triumph of the human spirit, but in fact, it's forced celebration. Yeah, it's like someone's beating you over the head and saying, "You know, your business is rejoicing," uh-huh. and uh, it's terrifying, actually. Yeah. And then at the end of his life, he wrote these happy little tunes, but in fact, they were completely sarcastic. A lot of things in the sh- in the fifteenth, his final symphony, and and many pieces of music. I mean, he it's this childlike children's songs with this very dark undercurrent. And was this was this essentially lost on the people in power? I mean, was he ultimately yeah. did he get kicked out or no, did they no, did I they mean, pick up on it? Yeah, a little bit, of course, but I think in the end he he was the winner. Good. Yeah. I'm glad to hear that. Me too. <laughs> You know what I like about Shostakovich is that he looks just like Harry Potter. He does. Well, Harry <laughs> Potter looks like Shostakovich. I'm not sure which one. Yeah. It's really funny, actually. Yeah. Yeah. You you can really hear so much, I don't know, I don't want to say doom in the music, but but there is a sense of sort of impending doom. Yeah. And you I, listen. you know, the dangerous thing is always telling people a story. It's very mm-hmm. easy for me to tell everyone my story to this piece of music and what I imagine in my head and some of the analogies I share with the orchestra. But the beautiful thing about absolute music, absolute music is a fancy term for music that doesn't have a plot, that doesn't mm-hmm. have a story. The great thing is that everyone gets to use their imagination and and your life experiences. I mean, there are certain parts of the music that remind me of things I've experienced. Or, mm-hmm. um, I. But again, you're completely open to think whatever you want, and it's a vast canvas of of emotions and 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 feelings that one could apply to their own life. Mm-hmm. Why don't we get to some of the music? I want to hear some of what you're talking about. Yeah. Well, for example, the very opening of the symphony, um, we're introduced with a battle from one side of the orchestra to the other side of the orchestra. The upper strings and the lower strings play the same exact rhythm over and over again, but they're kind of duking it out right at the beginning. Yeah. that same rhythm becomes softer and it becomes like time ticking away. Huh. Yeah, they're kind of, they're sort of playing against each other and then they kind of merge, sort of, and now they're carrying on together. There's a lot of searching in this music. And I think, you know, uh, right from the beginning, we're introduced to this drama, to this this issue, this battle within. 
And it's, you know, it slowly becomes something so aggressive, from something so aggressive to time ticking away. Mm -hmm. It's interesting that you said uh, dramatic, because when I have listened to Shostakovich's music, and I haven't heard that much, but it strikes me as very cinematic. Oh, completely. I mean, he was also a great film composer. He's one of the best. You know? Oh, yeah, that's right. Yeah, I mean, he, him and Prokofiev, they... Actually, it, it's incredible. I mean, they they really... They got it, and I think they... It's like film noir. It's, it's it, you, you can see things happening, and you, you feel like there should be uh, a visual aspect to this music, too. And that's the fun, is putting it in... You know, developing it yourself. Yeah. Yeah, no, I, I like it. It... it it reminds me of like um, something really dramatic from from like you know the the fifties or sixties like uh, Rebel Without a Cause. Yes. Yeah. You know, yeah. I, I pictured like the knife scene. Yeah. And huh. But this was a huge success, which is not always the case. I uh-huh. mean, from the beginning of his life, he was always you know, the first symphony. Didn't nobody believed in it? In fact, but it was a masterpiece. He was nineteen or something when he composed it. But this piece was a massive success. Something had something like 45 minutes of ovation. Holy moly. Yeah, I mean, it, everyone was moved, and he knew it was a massive success. I mean, it's a compact symphony, and it was, and everyone agreed. Everyone who was there agreed that it was incredible. Of course, a couple of critics had some bad things to say. They always do. But in the end, he knew, he knew it was a big triumph. I think at this point in his life, he... He thought it might be the last thing he wrote, you know. And that was always his feeling, and that was always the way he lived. So he's sitting in a performance, the piece ends, there's huge ovation. Does he see faces from the Russian government in Uh, the audience? hmm. Yeah, I wonder. Yeah, I I mean, I imagine ruefully sort of looking at them. Like, that's that's intense. Yeah, I mean, after all this intense music... um, of the first movement were introduced to so many themes and so many different characters and, and, and beautiful and comforting themes also, not just aggress- aggressive. Um, the second movement is like a sarcastic, almost like circus music. It's, it's really fun. I love that bass. sarcastic high woodwinds in the I can hear what you mean It's like it's like crazy laughter you know it's right. it's really fun it's like everything's fine no yeah. need to look over here yeah, <laughs> yeah i mean it, that's a really fun movement it lasts only about six minutes and it's mm-hmm. just it's so playful and, and and fun and many of the musicians in the orchestra get showcased solo violin the e-flat the little clarinet that you heard in the beginning 
um, and the flute, and it's just really it's a great it's a great piece of music that actually works well on itself. So, so you were talking about you know your own kind of interpretation. I mean, everybody has their own like we kind of uh, superimpose our own stories onto this music, and more so with with music that's just intra- instrumental, you yeah. know, being told in words what the story means. Yeah. So. Okay, so what's your story? Oh, I feel guilty telling you, but I mean, it's for me, it's something like a plot from a from a crazy Fellini film, the second movement. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's just like being at a party with the most weird characters and these yeah. gro- the grotesque and like Listerada. Yeah, yeah. One of these insane party scenes where you know people are just completely drunk and inappropriate, and it's it just it's. It's trippy, costumes and, and things like mm-hmm. this. So for me, that's kind of what what this movement is about. It's really it's really fun, and, I, and the orchestra has fun with it. You can't you can't help it. It's sort of like scary fun. It's yeah. That that moment when you look up at a party and you're like, these people are so <laughs> creepy right that's now. Like, <laughs> it's like in Luzern in Switzerland where you know there's Fastnacht or Carnival. Uh-huh. People go mad. You know, yeah. the most normal people who have everyday normal jobs at the bank or at as a lawyer, they go mad for about four days, wear these crazy costumes, are constantly intoxicated, and you know that's what that's what this is. I mean, it's it's crazy. Yeah, like Mardi Gras, or, yeah, or something, yeah, something like exactly that. Exactly right. Huh? Okay. I that's that's interesting, and I like that the idea of the of the sort of grotesque. Yes. Yeah, um, I can hear that in the music, and I could hear. I I did not hear it my first go round the 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 sarcasm, but when you said that, it was like, yeah, they do seem just like a just a scotch too happy sounding, <laughs> you know. <laughs> So, so what other movement should we hear? Well, I mean, after Shostakovich is a genius because after this ridiculous music, I mean, ridiculous in the most genius way, comes some of the saddest music ever written in, mm. in history. I think the third movement is a masterpiece, and if you're not on the verge of tears at certain moments, you should probably check your pulse to make sure you're still alive. <laughs> I I this move this music moves me so much and it's really hard for me to keep it together but as a leader and as a conductor I need to keep my cool and keep the trust of the orchestra but it's so emotional the harmonies I mean whether you're a musician or not you you feel something very special the very opening um, sets the tone for the entire movement
Wow. Yeah, no, it's incredible. The way it swells like that. No, yeah, and and he's a genius at, at including different sections of the string section, joining violas playing very high at times, the violins playing very low, opposite of what they're used to doing. Right. And I think that the journey one takes in this movement is interesting because there is certain music that comes back. <laughs> this always comes back. It's like an amen of some sort, some kind of prayer. And there are these beautiful solo moments from the oboe, flute, and clarinet, that, and, and at the end, the celeste and the harp play, that are just so eerie. To me, it's like an angel speaking to you, and it's very moving. And I mean, I don't suggest... I don't recommend depression for anyone, <laughs> but I, I hope people, certain people go through lives without depression. But it's clear that this man was suffering, and it's in the music, and it's amazing what he does with the harmony and the structure of the piece to, to bring that to life. And uh, it's a very moving experience. It's not all soft music, too. It gets extremely intense and loud mm-hmm. with the climax of the cellos playing extremely high and with xylophone, actually, really? people playing with them. Yeah, it's it's extremely intense and emotional, and and it's a it's hard to pace yourself as a musician. At the end of that movement, you feel like you should be done, and then <laughs> we get to the fourth movement, which is a massive piece of music. Before we go on to the fourth movement, you kind of hinted a little bit of, about uh, Shostakovich's religious. Um, I guess his re- religiosity uh, toward the beginning of the conversation. Can you talk a little bit about that and how that impacted his music? Yeah, I think, you know, the these different composers, there are certain composers that really like to pretend to be religious, like Berlioz. He would have loved to be really religious. He kind of said he was at the end, but I, I never really believed it. <laughs> um, someone like Shostakovich, I'm not so sure. Um, I'm not so sure what he felt towards God and towards religion in general. I, I felt that in the end music was his religion and it was his way of of speaking to God and speaking to the people and it, he was revolutionary in that way and I think in the end it really doesn't matter. I think it matters how we feel when we hear the music. Right. Um, it's like Bruckner. Bruckner was very devout and he was he was an extremely religious person and you hear that you you hear that in his music it doesn't inspire you to be religious but it makes you realize how small you actually are in the world mm-hmm. and that there is something greater but yeah this this music of this movement is human it's the it's, it's our role in society there's a i mean there's a certain moment in the music that for me sounds like like an old man all dressed up with nowhere to go I mean, someone who's lost everything and all he has is his memories, and it's it's very sad. It's and then the question is, what next? Yeah, wow, that's I love that. I love that interpretation of it. So so perhaps it's not it's not necessarily what the particulars of what Shostakovich's beliefs were, but that he was kind of conveying this sense of existential longing, just a sort of uh, existential crisis, I guess. Maybe yeah, even it's all about ser- life. Life is all about searching for something and, and figuring out why we're here, what we're doing. This entire movement, it's just constantly searching for an answer. <laughs> and at the end, you have sort of a, a response, and it's beautiful, and it's serene, and it's peaceful. But then it's crazy that it goes right to the, the last movement, which starts with a big crescendo in the whole in the whole orchestra.
And you know, it, this recording, I, this is Leonard Bernstein, right? Yeah. This is fast. And the, what's interesting about this is Shostakovich was actually at a concert that Leonard Bernstein did, mm-hmm. did of this piece. And it was extremely fast. But Shostakovich liked it. He had no problem. But in fact, his directions in the score are much slower. Hmm. And then the accelerando happens. Then the orchestra gets faster. Whoa, accelerando. That, That's a yeah, new one. Fancy word, yeah. The fancy word for let's get faster. <laughs> <laughs> and, um, you know, it, it's... But he's so meticulous in the score with his tempo markings that I really think he meant it. And again, this was part of his pers- personality where he wasn't going to fight with the conductor that, of the New York Philharmonic, you know. <laughs> um, he wanted his piece performed. And, and, and in the end, he, he liked it. But... Leonard Bernstein took the ending so fast that it sounds like a triumph. It, it sounds mm-hmm. like um, rejoicing and, and just a crazy party. And, and in fact, it should be almost even more than half the tempo that he did in the end. But again, Shostakovich approved it. So you, we never know. All we have is the information on the page, the tempo markings, the expressions, the music, the notes, the dynamics... It's our job to do the justice to the composer, and it's not always clear. It's, it's, it's a tough job sometimes. You know, there's a, there's a marking at the very end. The eighth note, which is a small note value, is equal to something like 180-something, mm-hmm. whereas... Some people interpret that as the quarter note, which is a much faster tempo than. Who knows in the end what, what he really envisioned at the beginning, mm-hmm. uh, what he really wanted, because, you know, composers often change their mind. I mean, Mahler was always changing his mind about tempi, about dynamics, uh, because he was constantly conducting his own music. Right. And it's everything in life. You know, you come with an idea, and sometimes you're shocked by someone else's idea, and you love it, and then you give in to that idea. It's, it's just, it's human nature. That's like a like a writer who's constantly sort revising, of revising very dangerous. over and over again. It's very dangerous. Oh my god! Yeah. So how do you how do you conduct it? At the ending, I really believe it's this kind of forced rejoicing. So, like I said before, it's someone banging you over the head and, and saying your job is to be happy right now. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a it's a scary thing when when a group of people are forced to pretend that everything's just fine. To just smile. Just keep smiling for the camera. Everything's fine. Yeah, Nothing to see here. That's <laughs> that's the most terrifying thing. And I think he, that's what happens at the end of this piece. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I try to follow, again, and I might change 10 years from now, but I try to follow what I have in the score, what the composer has given me as a musician, and try to, to do justice to what he originally intended. At different performances, do you conduct it at different speeds? Do you, is it depending on your your mood that day? No, I I think, of course, different performances night to night change in many ways, but mostly in color, and trans transitions and things like that, um, and phrasing. But rarely extreme tempo changes. Mm-hmm. I think it's not fair to the orchestra, and I think then you're. You're sort of figuring it out as you go. And I think a conductor's job is to have answers from the first rehearsal for mm-hmm. the orchestra because so many people have different ways of playing it. I mean, one of the musicians uh, made a funny joke with me and said, you know, well, Christoph Eschenbach, when he did the third movement, it was a length of a whole Haydn symphony. You know, it was so much longer because Eschenbach, he, when he did Wagner too, he really believed in giving more space to the music when it needed it harmonically. And I... 
I sort of believe in that. I'm I'm sort of in between, but I I think you lose the line, you lose the big picture if it's too slow. I see. And yeah, the beginning of the third movement's a good example. It's a very long phrase, and then the audience is lost if if time stops. Right. Because we can't hear. It's like happy birthday <laughs> to. You, you know, so, uh, yeah, I'm, not, I'm exaggerating, of course. I think Eschenbach is a genius. I think he's one of the best musicians out there. But he did like to stretch time. Did you hear about, speaking of that, there was, a, uh, there was this, this happening where they took, um, I think it was Beethoven's Ninth Symphony. Oh, and compared and they, different conductors. Well, no, they, they, this group got, you know, an audience in a room and they stretched it out for an entire 24-hour period. <laughs> No, I didn't hear about this, yeah. and I'm glad I wasn't there. Yeah, God, I can't imagine what that must have been like. No, no. It seems a little torturous. Anyway, wow, the the journey of this piece of music is really, really interesting. And I'm still kind of trying to, to wrap my head around how classical music works and why certain movements go where they do. Mm-hmm. But as I was listening to this, I noticed that, I mean, like each movement so distinctly has its own character, uh, in in the symphony, some symphonies I've noticed, you know, they they very much sort of go together. This one seemed, well, it had the same tone. It mm-hmm. it, it didn't. I don't know. It was very sort of kind of disjointed to me as a listener. Yeah, I think. But I think the interesting thing that he does is um, by by moving on to the next movement, you're coming out of the context of the last movement, and then it's that therefore that much more shocking to you as an audience member. Yeah. I mean, at the end of the first movement, it, it ends in silence. It's this beautiful ascending scale in the celeste. And it ends like floating up to heaven. And then we have that ridiculous sarcastic party in the second movement, which yeah. seems completely absurd. And then at the end of that, the third movement then comes, the most beautiful, sincere music. And then it ends in peace and tranquility. And then we're hit over the head again with loud music. So I think it's very good planning on his part. And I think... It does have everything. It has all different types of colors and, you know, musical vocabulary. And that's what makes it an exciting symphony. It's, I think, mm-hmm. it's the perfect length. And I think it's very compact. And from beginning to end, it really works. It has an incredible structure. It's well said. I, I, I really love the piece. James, thank you so much for taking time out of your schedule here in Houston to come and talk with us and on It's my Classroom. pleasure. Thank you for having me. This, this, I've really loved being introduced to this piece, and now I'm, you've got me thinking about it in a different way. Thank you. Okay, everybody, that about does it for this episode of Classical Classroom. Um, as a reminder, I've made a New Year's resolution to go out and see more classical music live, and um, I'd love to hear from you if your organization is going to be playing a show just go to our webpage, that's classical917.org backslash classroom. There are instructions for how to submit your uh, suggestion that I come to your show. And um, we will share our most creative submissions on our webpage. Um, Also, if you are a regular listener to the show and you listen on a podcast on iTunes, uh, rate us, review us. It'd be swell of you. Also, if you want to hear past episodes or see what's coming up on the show, again, go to that webpage, classical917.org backslash classroom. If you have a question that you would like to hear addressed on the show, send me an email at dclay at classical917.org. 
thanks today to our show's producer, Todd Holslander, for spiritual guidance from Sinjin Flynn, and to James Gaffigan for taking time out of his crazy busy schedule to come and be on our show. Thanks for listening. We'll catch you next time. <laughs>